0: Good morning to all of you, and welcome to this time. Thank you very much for uh, coming this morning, and uh, you will find on your sheets, a lav- or uh, on your tables, a-, a lavender-colored sheet. We'll be looking at the second side prior to uh, looking at the- that front side, so if I get a little boring and I see you reading on the front side, I'll be very disappointed, Okay. But um, nonetheless, uh, there will be an outline um, each of the the uh, weeks that I'm with you, and I want to say thank you again uh, to Karen and to those who are the leaders of Log On For Life for letting me uh, come and inviting me to come and share in this time. It's always a delight for me because... Um, Lenore and I spent almost 14 years here in ministry, and um, those 14 years have been some of the best uh, years that we could have possibly experienced in ministry, and uh, we're grateful for the many significant relationships that we've been able to enjoy and experience as a result of our time here as well. So, uh, when I look over this group, I see many familiar faces and some maybe not too familiar, because you may be new to this uh, body of believers known as Christ Church. But uh, we came in 1988 after a, a series of conversations with uh, Dr. De Crider, the then founding and uh, leading pastor of this congregation. And um, I was, I understand, the first uh, person he came to see me to interview. Uh, he came to Grand Rapids, where we were living at the time. He was going to speak at his alma mater, Calvin College. And he invited uh, me to come and hear his lecture. And then we shared uh, uh, some food and beverage together. And as a result of that first conversation, We had several other conversations uh, before I came in late November. It was in in, in between that time. That first conversation took place, I think, sometime in May. And then Lenore's dad was killed very tragically in an automobile accident. And so we went through that pain and that grief, and uh, we did not feel it would be wise to make a decision about moving or anything like that. So we waited for a period of time, and Dr. De Kreider was very gracious about all of that. And finally, we arrived in uh, December, or November of 1988, and we left in April of uh, 2002. So it's been an interesting journey. I'm working right now, part-time, retired, Ministers have a strange way of not retiring, but when I was here, most of the people who uh, were supposedly retired were still working, so I guess they were my mentors or something. But um, I worked part-time at a little congregation in uh, Grand Rapids known as the Standale Reformed Church. My denomination that I'm part of and ordained in is the Dutch Reformed Church. Some of you are familiar with that. It's the oldest um, denomination with a continuous history here in the United States. We were here in 1628. 1628. Did you hear that? It's a long, it's a long time ago. And uh, the first church, Dutch Reformed Church, uh, today is known as the Marble Collegiate Church, where Dr. Norman Vincent Peale was the pastor for many, many, many years. And when the Dutch bought Manhattan for a few pennies, um, they came along also with their churches. And uh, so I'm a member of that denomination. And um, I'm now working part-time at Standale Reformed Church, congregation of about 175 worshiping people on a Sunday morning. And I'm working with the lead pastor who is uh, a female, Jessica Schultz is her name, and I baptized Jessica 30 years ago. <laughs> so isn't that a great thing? And I married her parents as well. So God has a wonderful way of uh, allowing us to see how God works in our lives and the lives of other people as well. So I'm very grateful for being able to minister with her. She's a delightful woman and an extremely gifted young lady as well. She's a very fine preacher and a very fine administrator, and she loves the Lord, and she loves ministry, and I'm grateful to be part of that. We're gathered today and in these coming days under the general theme of Amazing Grace, God's Amazing Grace. And our time together is going to have two components. There will be a biblical study of the concept or the truth of grace. That is God's unmerited favor on our behalf. How God extends his love, his forgiveness, his righteousness to us in and through the person of Jesus Christ. That will be the one component, a biblical study. And the second component of that will be to walk through, and it will have to be more of a run-through, and I'm not even sure that we'll get to much of it, and that is a walk through uh, Louis Smead's book entitled Shame and Grace. Now, some of you maybe were with me on previous occasions. I walked through this a couple of times here at Christ Church, but it continues to intrigue me as to how a contemporary, up-to-date that book is. Dr. Smeeds is now deceased. He um, taught for many years at Fuller Theological Seminary in the area of philosophy and ethics. Uh, a unique man. He comes from the general area of where I come from in the, uh, in the Michigan area. And um, he he always wrote books out of his own life experience in many way. Uh, he's He is a theologian, but uh, not primarily a theologian. And so his books have always been unique to me. And this one entitled Shame and Grace is available to you. You don't have to buy the book. I, I don't get any profit from the book or anything like that. You don't have to buy the book in order to appreciate what we're going to be sharing, but the book is available in uh, the bookstore, uh, bookstore following today. I'm not sure what we're selling it for. It lists at about $13.99, so uh, whatever. But I don't want to, you to feel like you have to purchase the book. I made sure that Henry had some copies. If we sell out uh, today or next week, why? I'm sure we can purchase some more. But that will be the second component of, uh, of, of of this time together. Now, you may ask me, why this theme? Why this business of shame and grace? And I want to suggest to you and I want to tell you that because of over 45 years of ministry, I have dealt with many people whom uh, Dr. Smeeds describes in this way— And I want to read his uh, opening section entitled, To the Reader. And uh, this is why this book has always intrigued me, continues to intrigue me, and continues to um, touch people's lives, it seems to me. If you have a nagging feeling that you do not measure up to the person you ought to be, you are the person for whom I wrote this book. The generic label for what you feel is shame. We have shame when we persistently feel that we are not acceptable, maybe unworthy, and are less than the good person we are supposed to be. Shame is a vague, undefined heaviness that presses on our spirit, dampens our gratitude for the goodness of life, and slackens the free flow of joy. Shame is a primal feeling, the kind that seeps into and discolors all our other feelings, primarily about ourself, but about almost everyone and everything else in our life as well. Shame is not necessarily a bad thing to feel. Shame can get us in touch with the most beautiful part of ourselves. It can also be a warning that we are becoming the kind of person we do not really want to be. But shame is often an unhealthy feeling of unworth that is distorted, exaggerated, and utterly out of touch with our reality. Most of us carry both kinds of shame, healthy shame and unhealthy shame. That is, shame we deserve and shame we don't deserve. The good news is that shame can be healed. I believe that the healing of our feelings of shame gets its best start with a spiritual experience, specifically an experience of amazing grace. Now, as I said just a moment ago, after 45 plus years of ministry, I have met with people, dealt with people, who have this this uncertain feeling about themselves. They don't know how to describe it, but they can describe events or experiences or persons in their life that have prompted within them feelings of shame. They wouldn't maybe use that term. Some people use guilt to describe that feeling. But shame is different than guilt, it seems to me. And, um, and so some of the stories that Dr. Smeeds uses in his book, I have to say, first of all, connected with me. The things that he describes were uh, experiences that I oftentimes have felt and experienced. And then after many years of ministry, dealing with people, coming to understand that shame is, is, a, is a feeling that many of us have. And it's described in a variety of ways. Shame that's felt when maybe you are the only child in the classroom uh, that uh, has uh, a missing parent. Maybe a parent who is deceased and, and you don't feel like other, other children. Ought we to feel shame because we don't have a parent? Ought we to feel shame because maybe I said something or did something or experienced something that makes me feel badly and it seems like everybody else knows about it when in reality they probably don't know about it? Uh, Ought we to feel shame simply because uh, something happened in our life that we had no control over? Uh, But in some ways, it seems to dominate and control our lives. Ought we to feel continual shame if, as my sister, when she was 18, became pregnant, out of wedlock, had a child, married a man who was uh, divorced and was a drunk, and ought she to feel shame the rest of her life? that uh, God doesn't know how to forgive or it change a person's life like that. God does forgive. God does restore. But her church said to her many years ago, you can't be part of us anymore. You can't be part of us anymore. Ought she to feel shame her whole life that that kind of experience was hers? My friends, shame, I think, is, is an experience that many of us have had. And so that's why I want to spend some time thinking about God's amazing grace over against this whole matter of, uh, of shame. Now, please understand also that the Bible study will not always coincide with the readings from uh, Dr. Smead's book. So let's begin by considering that grace is gift and grace is Jesus Christ. And I'm looking now, as I said before, on the second side of this sheet. And we're going to begin by reading from Ephesians chapter 1 at verses 3 through 14. If you have your Bibles with you, you can follow along. And it might be helpful if in these coming weeks you uh, bring a Bible with you or have access to one of the Bibles that is here in, in, uh, in this room and in this area reading now from Ephesians uh, chapter 1 at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love... He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, that is, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, that is, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, every time I read this opening section of the book of Ephesians, I'm overwhelmed by what Paul does here to describe the experience of knowing God in Christ What God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And if there are two words that we could use to describe this passage, we could use the word gift and the word generosity. And if you have that sheet in front of you, you will note, and we'll look at it in just a moment, that I've divided the columns under the words gift and generosity. All that God has done in Christ for us is a gift to us, and what he has done is extremely generous. Now let me also say something a moment about this passage in the original language. I am not a Greek scholar, but what I do know about this, these verses, 3 through 14, is that it is like one single Sentence. There's no punctuation. There are no commas. There are no periods. And there are times when I read the scripture and when I read this particular passage, when I say to myself, Paul must have certainly been in the spirit at this point. He is writing. He is experiencing something so dramatic and so powerful that he can't type fast enough. He can't write fast enough. He's, he's, he's sensing what the Spirit wants to say through him, and so he's just writing away. Um, maybe some of you know and remember that uh, it, it was some dude, maybe several dudes, in France who began to put versification and chapters in the Bible, okay? Okay? Uh, I guess they did that because, you know, it's hard to just not stop once in a while. So they would give us chapters and they gave us verses. And whatever happened here in this particular section, I don't know, but someone must have thought that Paul needed to come up for air. So, So he put a period in there every so often or a comma in there every so often. But in the original, it's just one stream of words. If you will. And what's delightful and powerful about that, of course, as I've already said, is that I think Paul is overwhelmed by what he has experienced himself in Christ and the grace of God. And so he wants to express that in this passage. Now, look, if you will, at that uh, sheet in front of you and see how Paul talks about this grace Grace is gift. In verse 3, this gift is one that has blessed us in Christ. What's the generous side of that? With every spiritual blessing. You and I are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, the gift is that we have been chosen in Christ. How and what's generous about that? that we should be holy, that is, set aside. The word holy in Scripture always has, to be, uh, always has to do with being set aside for God's purpose and God's fulfillment in and through our lives, and that we should be blameless before God. We stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have no righteousness of our own. We cannot be forgiven on our own. Only God can do that. And Paul says God chose us in him so that you and I should be holy and blameless. Verse 5, the gift is that God destined us... In love, Some of us don't like that kind of language. What does it mean to be destined? My friends, it means that God knew you before you even knew God. That's a wonderful kind of thing to celebrate and rejoice in. God knows you even before you decided to experience and to know God. He destined us in love, and the generous side of that is that you and I are called to be His sons or His children through Jesus Christ. The gift in verse 6 is that this is all for the praise of His glorious grace. And the generosity is that He freely bestows what He gives. Freely gives. Freely imparts to us that grace in Christ. Verse 7, the gift is that in Christ we have redemption. We have forgiveness. We have the riches of His grace. And then in verse 8, the generous side of that is that which he has lavished on us. That's an interesting word that Paul uses here. It's overflowing. God's grace is overflowing. He lavished it, lavished it upon us. I don't know how often you use the word lavish. Probably not very often, but we all know what it means. We all know what it means. That's what God's grace is all about, being lavished with his love. And then, verse 9, the gift is that he made known the mystery, the mystery of his will. If there's anyone here this morning who can describe for ad- adequately for me what it meant for God to send his son Jesus into the world, what it meant for Jesus to die on the cross, what it meant for God to have a plan of redemption even before all of the ages began, if you understand that, then you're a better person than I am. Paul talks about the mystery, the mystery of God's grace, something that you and I cannot fully understand, but something that you and I can know and can experience. Mystery not meaning that it's something you have to figure out, but mystery in the sense that there's something beyond our reach always having to do with the grace of God. And what is the generous side of that? It's according to God's good pleasure. In verse 12, the gift again is that we have been chosen and destined. And what, what are we chosen for? What are we destined for? To live for the praise of His glory. In verse 13, the gift is that all who believe in Him that is in Christ are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the generous side of that is that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. God's grace is a gift, and God is overwhelmingly generous. That's the point of what we want to say regarding this passage. Now, I want to ask or raise two basic questions. First, how do we experience the grace of God? And secondly, how do we respond to the grace of God? How do we experience the grace of God? And how do we respond? First, how do we experience the grace of God? I want to suggest to you this morning that too often Too often, we make this experience of God's grace as a sort of once-for-all kind of event which doesn't seem to affect us or touch us on a daily basis. For example, for those of us who have been in churches where we practice what is known as confirmation, we go through a class... We confirmed the faith that we were taught. Usually that happened when we were maybe 12 or 13 or one of those teenage years. And uh, we said to ourselves, well, got that taken care of. Now we move on. The question is that, yes, we, we should move on, but do we experience the grace of God on a regular, daily, consistent basis of knowing God, loving God. I have a feeling that sometimes Paul's uh, fantastic language that that he uses here in that first chapter can be a hindrance to us because most of us don't walk around using that kind of language. Most of us don't go around talking about being chosen in Christ and destined for the praise of his glory. I mean, if you said that to your friend, they'd look at you and say, what kind of oddball is this individual? We don't use that kind of language, and I think sometimes Paul's language gets in the way. And I think the reason it does not always touch us, God's grace does not always touch us in that that regular manner is because we forget that God's grace is a gift. It's a gift that keeps on giving to us each day. And you and I need to have the eyes and the ears and the mind and the will of faith to see it. So as an illustration for that, I, I want to read a story which perhaps illustrates what I'm trying to say It's a story that I've had in my file for for many years. It comes from a a magazine that's no longer in print. The magazine used to be called Faith at Work. I wish it were still around. It was probably one of the best things uh, that was uh, available to the Christian community for many years. But this was an editorial written by the editor of the magazine at that time. His name is Walden Howard. And this is what he writes about how he experienced the grace of God on a daily basis here. It happened to me last summer when my wife went away to study for eight weeks in Spokane, Washington, leaving me alone in our house in Maryland. I discovered that I liked being alone at first, but not for long. I became quite lonely. One Sunday morning, I fixed breakfast and took it out on the deck to enjoy in the warm sunshine of a new day and noticed a strange bird in the trees that overhang our deck. Some kind of warbler. He was singing his heart out, and my appearance didn't scare him away. I thumbed through my bird book trying to identify him, and when I couldn't, I made a careful drawing of all of his markings and slipped it into the book for future reference. Soon I discovered that my visitor wasn't singing to me, though he didn't mind my sharing his song. There was another warbler nearby, and he was courting her. Before long, they set up housekeeping in our birdhouse that never before had been occupied, and the couple became my daily companions. In due time, I heard the sounds of baby birds inside the house and watched the comings and goings of two attentive parents bringing bits of food to their offspring. But I never saw the young birds. And as summer wore on, I began to hope that they would still be there for Esther to see on her return. My hope reached its height on the Friday before she came home. The young birds, to my knowledge, had not even emerged from the birdhouse. So, of course, the family would still be there for Esther the next day. Saturday morning, I drove to the airport. But when Esther and I got back to the house, the birds were gone. I have never seen them again. But one day, thumbing through Peterson's field guide to the birds, I came across a bird that perfectly matched my identification of my summer visitor. It was a black, whiskered vireo, though the book says they only live in Florida. Scrutinizing my drawing carefully, I noticed I had written down the date, June 20, and realized for the first time that that was the first day I had been alone in the house. Suddenly, a sense of wonder began to flood over me. What was to be made of the fact that during the precise time of Esther's absence and my subsequent loneliness, I was visited with heavenly messengers who came on the day Esther left and departed on the day of her return, having gone through the complete cycle of mating, raising their young, and flying away? I was startled at what I at first considered a coincidence, but subsequent reflection... Confirms my conviction that this was an act of God's grace, of His intervention into the ordinary events of my life in a manner that I can only interpret as evidence of His unseen hand. The meaning only appeared later as I looked back and saw how the pieces fit together. And I am left wondering how many other signs of God's care are given. That I don't even see. It's good to be reminded, it seems to me, that God's grace can be found, can be experienced in the gifts that He gives us day by day. The word in the original language for grace is charis, and it means grace and gift. So the bird songs, the freshly fallen snow, the child's smile, the words of encouragement that you and I are able to give, the verse from scripture that captures your thought for today, the listening ear that you allow someone to provide for you or you provide for someone else. A piece of music, a word in a book, whatever it may be, a visit, and on and on and on we could go to recognize these things as God's gift to you, his grace for the moment. But now let me be very clear. Let me be very clear. This grace that Walden Howard describes, this grace that may come to us in a variety of ways on a daily basis, is what we commonly call common grace. Common grace. That is the grace that's given to all humankind. Psalmist says that God allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God's special grace is that which God has made known in Jesus Christ. And so, note again the phrases that Paul uses in Ephesians one. He has blessed us in Christ. He has chosen us. In Christ, he has destined us in love, which he freely bestowed. In Christ, we have redemption. In Christ, we have forgiveness. In Christ, it's all according to God's good pleasure. So the amazing grace of God is about Jesus Christ. God's gift of redemption. Grace is about kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. That is God's time, God's decisive time, God's at just the right time versus kronos. That is how you and I calculate time by looking at a clock by watching the sun rise and set, by putting dates on our calendars. That's Kronos time. But grace in Kairos time is when God's grace breaks through into your life or into mine. Allow me to give you a couple of personal illustrations. Some of you probably have heard them before. I've told them before. I've told them here. And I repeat them many times in my ministry, not because I think they're such great stories, because they're about me, but rather they're about the grace of God as I've experienced it and as I think about how these events have changed and touched my life. The first part of that story I want to tell you is when I was 16 years of age. In my particular denomination, we have what we call confession of faith. There comes a point in a person's life when he or she wants to confess their faith in Christ. It oftentimes comes as a result of being in youth Work or in a in a youth group, and the sponsors or the leaders of the group challenge the kids about you know you need to join the church because that's how it oftentimes was. It was related to joining church, and confessing faith. So one morning I came out of uh, uh, out of the worship service, and there was a group of us teenagers that would stand outside talking about what you know was happening and. Someone said, I think I'm going to go to the elders' meeting tomorrow night. And uh, you had to go to the elders in order to make confession. You know, not confession behind the screen kind of confession, but confession of your faith. And someone said, oh, really? Well, maybe I'll go too. Well, by the time Monday night happened, there were about 25 of us. (laughs) And the elders, of course, thought they had a revival on their hands. (laughs) And they used to meet in a very, uh, rather big room with the chairs all around the the edges. And um, they frankly didn't know what to do with us. But they tried, and I have to give them credit. So, you know, we sat there and we were interspersed among the various elders. Today, now, what we normally do, or I've done in my ministry, is to make sure that one or two elders is paired up with a, a child or a, a teenager, and we talk with them, and it's more personal, and it, whatever. But we went around the room, all 25 of us, and we had to say what Jesus meant to us, and you know various things like that. And of course, by the time you got to number 24, he was, or she was, repeating everything that everybody else has said. <laughs> so anyway... That uh, we were received into the church, and on Easter Sunday morning, we all stood before the congregation, and uh, we were received into the fellowship of that church, and and we were we you know the people applauded, and it was a, it was a it was a fine event. But I don't remember that my life was much different. I think. I went through the steps. It was what was expected of me. But I do remember a time, maybe a year later, when I knelt by my bed and I said to Jesus that if you are indeed the person you claim to be, and I know that I need a Savior, I ask you to come into my life and I ask you to be my Savior and my Redeemer and my Master. I believe that every person in this room claims the name of Jesus Christ needs to have a transformative defining moment when you know that you've made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. because His grace, His grace touched you in a specific, renewing way. The second event happened while I was in seminary. I'm not proud of that event. I was going through a very difficult time. I was walking through some pretty deep valleys. And it was during this time that I went to do my clinical work. That is, I spent time at Methodist Hospital in Indianapolis as a chaplain. But it's also known as clinical pastoral education, where you spend time in a small group with other Clergy or about to be clergy, and you are, you work on the hospital floor, and you regularly would have to give verbatim reports about contacts with individuals. And we met regularly in small groups talking about our experiences, sometimes really letting each other know how we felt about each other, which wasn't always a very pleasant experience, but it was pretty powerful. And we always met with our supervisor one-on-one. My supervisor knew my story. My supervisor knew that I was experiencing a lot of hurt and pain in my life. My supervisor also knew that he had assigned me two very difficult sections of the hospital, One section was all cancer patients. At that time, cancer patients were in the hospital for long periods of time. I was young. I was only in my mid-twenties at this point. And the other section of the hospital that I was assigned was long-term orthopedics. That doesn't happen anymore either today. But the average person in that section of the hospital had been in the hospital a minimum of four weeks, and some had been in there eight to ten weeks, long-term orthopedics. So I got to know these people. I got to share some of their life. I got to share some of their hurt, their pain, and tried to figure out how my my life, what I thought was really difficult, (laughs) was so bad over against theirs. And one day while I was with my one-on-one with the supervisor, he said to me, Ralph, I want to give you uh, something that has helped me throughout my life and I offer it to you because I believe you need to have a better understanding of who you are and the gifts that God has given to you and how God could use you if you could let go of some of your stuff. And it wasn't just what I was experiencing then, but some of my stuff is growing up and all that kind of thing. He gave me this quote from Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich is a German pastor and theologian, very well known in uh, Germany uh, during the 50s and 60s. Paul Tillich both ministered and taught Um, during and following the Nazi occupation of Germany, the destruction of the Jews, and the bombings that took place during the Second World War. In fact, most of Dr. Tillich's sermons were preached while he stood in the rubble of the church after it was bombed out in Germany following the Second War. This is what my supervisor gave me. It's from a sermon entitled, You Are Accepted. Some of you probably have heard this before. I've shared it with so many people because, in fact, just four or five weeks ago, I shared it with a young man who has been in prison. And um, and uh, it was like a, like when I shared it with him, it was like the Holy Spirit was present there to, to just change that young man's life. This is what it is. Do we know what it means to be struck by grace? It does not mean that we suddenly believe that God exists or that Jesus is the Savior or that the Bible contains the truth. Grace does not simply mean that we are making progress in our moral self control, in our fight against special faults, and in our relationships to persons and society. Grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when we feel that our separation is deeper than usual. It strikes us when our disgust for our own being, our indifference, our weakness, our hostility, and our lack of direction and composure have become intolerable to us. Those words describe Ralph Robron to the nth degree. Sometimes at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness, and it is as though a voice were saying, You are accepted. You are accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for that name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens to us, we experience grace. And I want to tell you, I went to my room I read and reread that statement. I am accepted, I said to myself. That's grace. And a truth was beginning to engulf me. It was like I was overwhelmed. It was like I was standing in a 360 degree circavision thing like you find at Disney World, a panorama of sound and emotion and movement. And I was caught up in those moments in the life and the death and the experience of Jesus. It was like I heard the sound of the angels at his birth saying, glory to God in the highest. It was like I heard the cry of that newborn babe. It was like I heard the call that Jesus gave to to Matthew and to Peter, come, follow me. And I saw Jesus heal the sick and And uh, the maimed and, and raised the dead. I heard him speak forgiveness and wholeness to the prostitute and to the lame man. I heard the crowds cry, crucify, crucify him. And I heard the cries of agony as the nails pierced his hands and his feet. And the overwhelming truth of Isaiah when he describes the suffering servant that he jesus was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we ralph robron is healed and i said that death is mine my friends grace is gift And grace is Jesus Christ, God's gift to me in Christ. And I believe, as I've already said, that there must be this transformative moment in one's life. Because such moments are sacramental. And I need never again try to gain God's acceptance God already loves me far more than I have ever been able to accept or even to understand. And that's why we call this God's amazing, (laughs) amazing grace. Now, Something you'd like to ask before I read a few things from Dr. Smeets? As yes, we have a microphone here so everybody can hear. And it's being recorded, I believe, so you'll be forever. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Be careful what I say. Huh? <laughs> what would you say to someone who said, who's, who professes to believe, but says, I don't recall ever having that moment? <clears throat> well let's let, let's respond to that a moment. What about that? Would you repeat? Sure. The question is what would you say to someone who has said I've never had that kind of moment in my life. That Trent and I'm not talking now. Please understand. I am not talking about the persons who say, I know the exact date, I know the exact time, I know the exact minute, I know the exact hour. or are people, and, and that's fine. I, I, I don't discount that. But I believe that what I'm talking about here is that transformative kind of experience that says, this is has been the changing, defining uh, experience of my life. You see, let me just back up a moment and say, I think that the problem with the Christian church today and the Christian community and many of us as Christians is that we are trying to be so politically correct that we no longer feel comfortable in saying, this is what I believe, this is what I know, this is what has changed my life. And I think it's time for the Christian community to say this is what we profess. It might not be what you profess. It might not be what so-and-so knows from their experience, but this is what I know. And, and, the own, and, and that, was, that was what happened in the early church as well. The early church uh, spoke about that which they had experienced. And as a result, there was growth, there was change, there was transformation. But I think we as Christians have become altogether too withdrawn, too ingrown many times. And uh, we're we're fearful of being able to say, this is what I believe. This is what I know. So, yeah, almost too polite, he says. And now back to the person then who maybe has not had that experience. I certainly... It is not my responsibility, nor am I called upon to be the judge of another person's experience. Um, but uh, having said that, then I also have to say, How does that person how do I live out my my life? Are there evidences of my life in my life of Christian growth, Christian maturity? Um, are there are there ways in which I I live out my faith that uh, uh, express transformation, that kind of thing? Yeah.
1: I'd like to share just for a moment the testimony, uh, such as Ralph expressed. The moment was October 1959. I didn't know. The difference, or what either prayer or testimony was, but a friend of my brother's insisted I go to a teen retreat in Plain, Illinois, and uh, kept hearing this voice stand up repeatedly, louder. What will I say? Say the only thing you know, and I'll take care of the rest. The only thing I knew was a 12 scout loss. And it uh, didn't do too well with that, as you can imagine. Devastated with tears. After the uh, service ended, the missionary said, if you'll be faithful, to what you said, it was really not what I said, it was something that the Holy Spirit said to him, I have work for you to do in my church. Last 40 plus years i have used an expression god bless your day I don't Know what first inspired me to say that but let's just give credit to god the holy spirit and now i want to give encouragement to everyone in the room because everywhere i go i get a positive response from that repetition of that thought glory to god thank you
0: all right, let me just read a few things from Dr. Smead's a moment, because, um, again, it's my, my feeling, as I said at the beginning, that most of us live with a sense not so much of heavy guilt as we do shame. And this is how he describes what he calls a very heavy feeling, and you'll see that on the front side of your, your uh, uh, page as well. He writes, I felt vaguely guilty, but I I could not think of anything in particular that I felt guilty about. My friend Neil Warren had my number. He set his eyes in the shape of a smile when I told him this ten or so years ago now and said to me, I don't think you feel guilty at all, Lewis. I think what you feel is shame.'" What he said sounded like wisdom, but it took me a while to understand it. I had never had the gumption to do much bold sinning, so I was not hexed much by ghosts of former sins. But I lugged around inside of me a dead weight of not good enoughness. Isn't that a great phrase? Not good enoughness. This, I sensed, was what Neil Warren meant when he said that my trouble was not guilt but shame. About the same time, back in Muskegon, Michigan, my mother gave me a second lesson in shame. I was visiting with her at the hospital one afternoon. She was going to die in a few weeks, though only she knew it. The winter sun was setting. She was bone tired. We had talked too long. Her eyes closed now, moist at the corners, and she heaved old Lewis I'm so glad that the Lord forgives me all my sins. I've been a great sinner, you know. Great sinner? As far back as I could remember, she was on her knees scrubbing people's kitchen floors most days, up to her neck in the frets of five fussing children every evening. And when late night fell, there she was on her knees again, in her own kitchen this time, asking the Lord for strength to do it again for one more day. When did she have time, and where did she get the energy to do much great sinning? <laughs> That's what I like about this guy. <laughs> He's wonderful. When she was feel- what she was feeling about herself in those last weeks was what she had been feeling most of her life, that she was just not good enough. Not a good enough mother, or a good enough Christian, or a good enough anything she could think of, but not being good enough felt to her the same as being very bad, that is, a great sinner, was the only way she could think of to describe the heaviness she felt. I kept my mouth shut, but I did remember what Neil Warren had said to me, and I thought, Mother... What makes you feel so bad about yourself is not sin, but shame. That's right. My mother had a classic case of unhealthy shame. A lifelong affair with chronic not good enoughness. I learned my shame from her. It's what he calls a heavy feeling. A knife cutting into the heart, just when I'm feeling good about myself, there's something that says, no, not so. The feeling of shame is about our very selves. Not about some bad thing we did or said, but about what we are. So this final, these final phrases before I'm finished here. Here are some shame-toned feelings that people have expressed to me and that I have felt from time to time. You may want to ask yourself whether they express feelings that you have had. I sometimes feel as as if I'm a fake. Fake. I feel that if people who admire me really knew me, they might have contempt for me. I feel inadequate. I seldom feel as if I'm up to what is expected of me. When I look inside of myself, I seldom feel any joy at what I am. I feel inferior to the really good people that I know. I feel as if God must be disgusted with me. I feel flawed inside, blemished somehow, dirty sometimes. I feel as if I just can't measure up to what I ought to be. I feel as if I will never be acceptable. Let us pray together. Lord God, You know us. You know our hearts, our minds, our spirits. You know our weaknesses, our hurts, our pain, our disappointment. You also know our joys, our hopes, our dreams, our expectations. And once again in these moments, dear God, we offer ourselves to you, mindful of the fact that you are the one who can heal and redeem and restore and make new. And you are the one who extends your grace to us so that we can simply know that we are accepted. Thank you for each person in this room. And we pray, dear God, that by your Holy Spirit, you will minister to each one of us so that your amazing grace may be made known, may be celebrated, may be real in each one of our lives. In the strong and loving name of Jesus Christ, we offer this prayer as we offer ourselves to you. Amen.